Welcome to the History Nerds United podcast. I'm your head nerd, Brendan. Thank you so much for being here. Today, author and journalist Scott Shane and his book, Flee North. Scott's a big deal. He's actually been on two different investigative teams that won the Pulitzer Prize. So two Pulitzer Prizes to his name. That's why they call him Scotty Two-Time. I'm just kidding. They don't actually call him that. I'm going to ask him, though. I think he'd like that. I think we should make that a thing for him. Anyway, the book, Flea North, it's amazing. It's about a story of the Underground Railroad that you probably have not heard before. So let me shut up. Let's bring Scott on. And here we are with author Scott Shane in his book, Flea North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You wrote Flea North. I loved it. It's got so much stuff in here. How did you come across this story? What made you decide you had to write it? This really goes back to moving to Baltimore to work for the Baltimore Sun in 1983. And some years after, I think it was probably maybe around the mid-90s, I discovered for the first time, to my shame, that uh, around the Baltimore's beautiful inner harbor, where, you know, our kids were little at the time, we were pushing them in strollers and buying ice cream. It's just a very pleasant, you know, sort of city marketplace kind of scene that in the 19th century, the slave trade, the domestic slave trade had thrived around that harbor. And thousands of people were shipped south out of the Baltimore Harbor, usually to New Orleans, where they would disappear into the cotton plantations and sugar plantations often separated from families, uh, away from everything and everyone they'd ever known. And I was so shocked by that that I proposed to my editors at the time to write about it. And they rolled their eyes a little bit. You know, we're a newspaper. We're not a history paper. But uh, they went along with it because they didn't really know this history. And, you know, it's, it's striking to me to this day, most Americans, I think, don't really have a notion of this massive domestic slave trade that shipped something like a million people south from the upper south to the deep south in a, in the half century before the uh, Civil War. I was so taken by that that I wrote about it for the, for the Baltimore Sun in 1999 and a couple more times in the subsequent years, but you know, more than 20 years ago. And I always wanted to return to the subject. And when I retired from the New York Times, you know, right before the pandemic at the end of 2019, I started looking for a story to tell in that world, world of domestic slave trade. And I ran up against, you know, barriers that will be very familiar to a lot of uh, your history fans. Uh, and that is that the enslaved were mostly or, you know, overwhelmingly illiterate and did not leave lots of, you know, journals or correspondence about what it was like to be sold south. And the slave traders were literate, but not very literary. And they they, too, didn't leave much behind. And it wasn't probably a business they wanted to brag about. And I had come across the fact that there was an abolitionist named Charles Torrey who had died, uh, you know, spoiler alert, who died in the, the Baltimore, in the Maryland Penitentiary in Baltimore. And, you know, I started looking at him and I became quite focused on the idea that uh, this guy was helping people escape and some people were helping people escape and others were selling them south. So from this area in the mid-Atlantic, I became very obsessed with the, you know, what you might call the existential situation of somebody who was enslaved in the Atlantic, which is every day they live with the possibility of being sold south. 
But they also know that Pennsylvania, the free state, is not that far away. So they also are living with this scary but not completely unrealistic possibility that they could take off and reach freedom. So I was I was quite interested in that. So I started reading more about Charles Tory, and I discovered that he had a guy who has often been portrayed, when he's been portrayed at all, as uh, Tory was a white New, Eng- New Englander. And there was a guy named Thomas Smallwood, who was often portrayed more or less as uh, Charles Tory's black sidekick. But the more I looked at the story and the timeline and who did what, the more I realized that Thomas Smallwood, who was about a dozen years older than Tory and who was local, the two of them, you know, connected. But really, he was the senior partner, not just in age, but he knew the turf. He knew uh, the people enslaved around Washington. He knew their enslavers. So he was sort of, you know, the brains of the operation. And then I discovered that he had written a series of letters to an abolitionist paper in Albany, which was on their route north. And in these letters, which are kind of a little bit hard to describe stylistically, they're kind of madcap letters. They're written under a pseudonym he got from Charles Dickens. And he's basically mocking the slaveholders, the slave catchers, the slave catching police officers, and celebrating those who are escaping from them. And he does it in kind of a in a style that borrows a lot from Dickens, I think. They're they're basically satire, often quite um, sharp and bitter satire. But I found these letters really kind of fascinating. And I, you know, the more I thought of, the more I got into the story of Thomas Smallwood, the more I was just taken by him. Bought his own freedom at the age of thirty. He's living in Southeast Washington with, at that time, a wife and four kids, making his living as a shoemaker. And that's basically by day. And at night, he's helping people escape slavery. And yet somewhere in there, he's finding time to write these quite often quite delightful dispatches for the newspaper and send them off to Albany for publication. You know, it took a little doing to get a hold of these letters. But the more I read those, the more I was just struck by the guy. And I realized that he was really the main character of this story. I mean, they're both daredevils, but with Tory, not to, you know, put him to the side too much, but we can put him to the side for a second. Smallwood, his upbringing is, is so strange, right? Because and I want to say this very carefully. He was enslaved. That's terrible. We all know this. But he had such a strange upbringing under slavery that it's almost like he inadvertently was created into this perfect person to be somebody who understands what it's like to be a slave, to be scared, but also somebody who knows nobody's better than me. And in fact, if you're a slaveholder, I'm probably better than you. And he has this somehow this perfect mix of daredevil in him, but knowing that there is a high cost if something goes wrong, right? Can you talk a little bit about his upbringing? What was his life under slavery like as a child? You know, the funny thing is he he eventually gets around to writing a a memoir. It's not a long memoir. It's 60, 70 pages. Um, But one of the striking things about it is he he accords only literally a couple paragraphs to his life in slavery. And then almost the entire memoir is devoted to his uh, adventures helping other people escape slavery. I did a lot of archival research uh, to try and figure out, for example, just basic questions like who his parents are. He doesn't say anything about his parents in his memoir. And there are 
hints there that perhaps they had been sold away, separated from him. You know, I have no evidence of that, but he is extremely angry about the way, the way families are separated by the slave trade. And the fact that he doesn't say anything about his parents, uh, you know, may be, may be significant. You, you know, I think if he were here to talk to us, he would say that he was extremely unfortunate to be born in slavery and extremely fortunate to fall into the hands of a slaveholder named John Ferguson, who really seems to have uh, stumbled into slaveholding in the sense that he married his second wife and Thomas Smallwood and his sister came along. She had inherited, the wife had inherited them apparently along with her children from a previous marriage. So it was a complicated sort of ownership situation. John Ferguson was a minister and, you know, more or less blue collar guy. He did work at a lumberyard, but seemingly hostile to slavery, not an out, outright abolitionist, I wouldn't say, but a decent guy. And so he goes to Smallwood, Thomas Smallwood, at the age of 15 and says, I will free you at age 30, but I can't do your freedom outright. And I can't afford essentially to give you your freedom outright. I have to, you know, I have to buy your freedom and you have to pay me back is what it comes down to. And Smallwood agrees to this deal, and he's uh, earning money on his own, often uh, working out of uh, Ferguson's household and turning wages over to Ferguson to pay off this debt. By the age of 30, he's, he's free. But in the meantime, John Ferguson and his wife have taught Thomas to read and uh, from, from an early age. And he talks about being a kind of... Um, you know, almost uh, the neighborhood prodigy, because for a black boy in slavery, as he puts it, to be able to spell words of two syllables was very impressive at the time. So people would stop him literally as they walked by their house and say, you know, Thomas, come over here and, you know, show us your stuff. So he seems to have gotten uh, a good uh, grip on literacy. And then he doesn't say so explicitly, but he worked in the home of a Scottish-born schoolmaster by the name of John McLeod in D.C. And he, you know, Smallwood appears to have been, you know, a household servant. But this guy Smallwood ran a series of schools and was clearly very dedicated to education. And his kids, who were older, were also like-minded. And they all, there's, I couldn't find any evidence that Smallwood had actually attended one of McLeod's schools. But they all seem to have taken time to encourage him, him to read various things and, and sort of guide his learning. But one way or another, by the time he's in his 30s, he was a very well-educated guy. And when he comes to write his memoir when he's about 50, it kind of shows off by quoting about 10 different authors in the first you know, page or two, just to kind of uh, let you know that I may have been born in slavery, but you know, you're not dealing with some kind of guy who's been uh, deprived of book learning. And I, I was struck by exactly what you're talking about. On the one hand, here's a guy who you know, had made a pretty good life for himself. He had this shoemaking business. He had a wife and kids. He was, you know, uh, a, a sort of modest leader in the black community in, in D.C. He you know, had purchased his freedom and he could have just, you know, enjoyed life and run out the clock. But he seems to have vowed to do everything he could to strike a blow against slavery, you know, helping people escape from slavery was uh, illegal, and uh, you could go to prison for it. 
And he specifically could be made a slave again if he got caught. He could, yeah. I mean, for an African-American who was charged with, as they sometimes said, enticing or aiding somebody uh, escaping slavery, you could go to the penitentiary. If you were black, you definitely ran the risk of being returned to slavery and sold south. You know, sold south away from his wife and four kids. You know, in those days, of course, your your family would have no idea where you were sent. Because you'd end up in New Orleans, you'd be sold off, auctioned, auctioned off, and you would, you know, go to potentially, you know, somewhere else in Louisiana or somewhere in another state. There was no way for your family to find you or for you to find them or for you to communicate with them. And so families were torn apart often forever. And uh, so the stakes were extremely high. And of course, you could just be shot if you're, you know, seen meddling with somebody's, with a slaveholder's property. The stakes are very high, but he is determined to do this. But at the same time, and maybe this comes out in the contrast with Charles Tory, you know, he seems to have been kind of, I, I think of him as steely in the sense of taking risks, but always measuring the risks, not being foolhardy and not wanting to sacrifice his life or his family's well-being uh, for the cause as much as he believes in it. You know, he's probably the kind of guy you want to have doing a job like this. I mean, now, I couldn't help but thinking, you know, especially let's talk about our second hero, uh, Mr. Tory. But it, it almost like, first of all, I want to have a beer with Thomas Smallwood. <laughs> Charles Tory, maybe depends on the day. I mean, it's it really feels like a lethal weapon situation where Danny Glover is. <laughs> and listen, it's not race thing. It's just who they are as people like Danny Glover's like he's going to do the right thing. But he knows like we're playing with fire, whereas Tory and Mel Gibson are kind of the same people, too, because it's like, yeah. They're a little out of their minds. And I mean, Tory, as you mentioned, New Englander, kind of comes abolition, like true abolition, almost a little late. And I was trying to think of a nice way to say this, but really, he's just kind of before this, a sad sack, right? He he fails it so much. Yeah, he's sort of a screw up. Yeah, um, it's funny that you think of the Lethal Weapon movies, uh, because I did too. What I would give for a um, you know recording of the conversations between Smallwood and Tory. You know, Tory's this guy who's gone to Andover and Yale. Uh, so he's kind of had the best education you could have at the time. His parents died, or, you know, he's a, a little kid of tuberculosis, but he's raised by a grandfather who had served in Congress. And, you know, he's coming from a certain slice of, you know, more or less Boston Brahmin, sort of New England upper crust. Not always a lot of money uh, sloshing about in his extended family, but a very good education and, uh, you know, a, a sort of prestigious history. And then he's meeting Smallwood, who's purely self-made man. As far as I can tell, he never went to school for a day in his life. And yet, he, you know, I'm quite confident he could he could match Tory quote for quote, you know, citation for citation um, through the works of English literature and more. So, yeah, you do have this uh, opposites attract uh, kind of situation. The other thing is that uh, Tory's, you know, pretty young at the time. I think when he comes down to D.C., he's 28 and he has already failed quite spectacularly at two different careers. First, he tries to teach. Unlike with Smallwood, there's quite a bit of correspondence and other sort of archival records uh, that fill in Tory's uh, earlier life. And so you you see these painful letters where he basically um, appears to have 
not been a terribly popular teacher, so the student body was dwindling from few to none. And they seem to have just found him difficult to understand. And so he pretty much runs from teaching with his tail between his legs. And he's had a religious education, so he decides to try his hand at preaching. And that goes somewhat better, but he loses a couple jobs uh, as a preacher as well. There are at least some comments that have been preserved that say he was a terrible sermonizer. Which is like the main job. Like, that's the one you got to get right. If you can't give a good sermon, uh, yeah, it's sort of the end of the road. And the the other thing was happening at the same time was he became uh, captivated by the anti-slavery cause and even the infighting within the abolitionist community in New England. But then he comes up with a new idea for himself, and that is he'll move to Washington, D.C. and become a correspondent for a, a whole group of small abolitionist papers in the North. He writes the editors and sets this gig up. You know, it seems to work okay. He he does start filing dispatches about what's going in con- on in Congress. But as you follow his story, you realize that that too uh, is not really where his heart is in in sort of you know going to Congress with his notebook and and taking down the minutia of bills as they go through the legislative process. That wasn't his thing. He was very fired up about slavery and the anti-slavery cause. And here he was also in slave country for the first time in his life. You know, this guy who, uh, like so many New England abolitionists, you know, were very absorbed by a cause that for them was somewhat theoretical. Uh, All of a sudden, he's, uh, you know, he was attending black churches where some of the parishioners were enslaved and others were free. He was seeing slavery in action on the street in people's homes. And so I think he got very excited about uh, the the cause in, in that way as well. And then you got heroes, you have to have a villain, and you were able to find the ironically named Hope Slatter. Yeah. So the bad guy in this story is the leading slave trader of the region and the time, which is the 1840s. Hope Hull Slatter, believe it or not, was was named for a famous Methodist minister who brought Methodism to Georgia, the state of Georgia, whose name was Hope Hull. And his mom was a devout Methodist and named him after this preacher. But he took a different course in life. Early in life, he was a small-town sheriff in the South. If you're a sheriff at that time, you're often involved in auctioning off people's estates and seizing property and that sort of thing. And so that exposed him to the business of buying and selling enslaved people. So that must have uh, caught his imagination. So he leaves the sheriff's job and he moves to a series of towns in the South Fayetteville and sets up shop uh, as a slave trader. In the mid-1830s, he comes to Baltimore. Baltimore is the largest city in the South, and it's also, in a way, the hub of you know this sort of labor surplus among the enslaved in, in the mid-Atlantic. The de- tobacco industry was declining So a lot of farmers were switching to grains and other things that were not so labor intensive. And they found they had an an enslaved workforce that was bigger than they needed. So they were looking to sell. Meanwhile, Eli Whitney had invented cotton gin and cotton was booming. Sugar was uh, going very strong in the Deep South. So there was an insatiable demand down there. And so he becomes the middleman, like many others, but he was one of the big ones. 
Hope Slatter becomes the middleman who will send his agents out across Maryland, the eastern shore, southern Maryland, places where there are plantations, advertise in the local papers, offer to buy men and women who are not needed and children who uh, are no longer wanted. And then he would accumulate them in his private slave jail. And when he had essentially a, a shipload, he would send them south. And his brother, he had a brother named Shadrach Slatter, who operated the southern hub of his business. Believe it or not, they had what they called a showroom there. And so these people who had been uprooted from the Upper South were now fed well for a few days and, you know, their skin was often greased. And so they dressed up in nice clothes and then they would be sold off, uh, scattered across the South. Yes, unfortunately. But luckily, we have our two heroes. And now you've already touched on this. And especially, I, I don't think we've hit it hard enough. So Tori and Smallwood are doing their things. They're getting slaves out and everything. And I know you mentioned here, sometimes Tori wrote something, sometimes Smallwood wrote something, but you call them within the book, the laughingstock letters which is literally the slaves get away, they get up to Canada or, you know, northern New York, and they're safe. And somebody sent a letter, either small word or Tory, basically saying, hey, slaveholders, screw you guys, we got your slaves. They're not slaves anymore. By the way, they're having a great time up here. Reading it, you're almost sitting there going, how did somebody just think like, hey, you know what? Now that we've done something highly illegal, let's mock everyone. And, and still live right where they're doing it. I know. Yeah, it probably was not the wisest thing to do from a security standpoint. But I have to say, it's hard to read those letters and not cheer them on. Smallwood wrote the letters. Tory used the same pseudonym for a few for a few separate letters, but basically it was Smallwood's baby, and Smallwood was a big fan of Charles Dickens. And I, I think uh, you know he his style was certainly influenced by by Dickens. These letters have never gotten much attention. A handful of historians have come across one or more of them, um, sometimes reprinted in another paper. You know, one of the first things that I did when I learned about them was try to find who had a full run or close to a full run of the, of these newspapers, which had not been digitized and not been added to, you know, newspapers.com or the other big newspaper databases. So I found from a listing in the Library of Congress that the Boston Public Library seemed to have quite a big collection. And they found, uh, you know, a stack of the, this uh, Albany newspaper in a warehouse offsite. The Boston Public Library spent a very long day on, a, on their fancy microfilm machine downloading this newspaper onto my thumb drive. I think it was 500 and something pages in the end. And then spent a lot of time going through them very carefully, you know, for any kind of clues about Tory and Smallwood. And Tory, I should say, just six or eight months into their escape activities, Tory takes off from Washington, D.C., and moves to Albany and becomes the editor of this abolitionist newspaper, which at the time was called Toxin of Liberty, Toxin being an old word for bell, so sort of Liberty Bell. So he's out of the picture, and Smallwood is now operating alone, sending people north. But along with the people, uh, although by post, he's also sending these dispatches you know, I don't know how he got the idea. There was a fellow named Abel Brown, another anti-slavery activist who had written for the same newspaper, and he had written some um, sort of mock sympathetic letters to slaveholders, sort of like, um, you know, dear Brendan, I know you're you're heartbroken that, uh, you know, these three people who you love so much have left you, but I just want to assure you they're they're safe on the other side of the Great Ontario, Lake Ontario. 
So that may have been a sort of match that set off uh, Smallwood, but he really got into it. And, you know, the the uh, remarkable thing about Smallwood was he was living in D.C. He was mostly helping people escape from D.C., its suburbs, and from Baltimore, where he had a uh, a trusty ally by the name of Jacob Gibbs. And, you know, these were, I mean, well, uh, Washington in particular was a small place. Washington City was only about 30,000 people at the time. And his neighborhood was uh, not as segregated as you might expect. I found that people in very different walks of life, white people and black people, were all kind of mixed up in in uh, this neighborhood around the Navy Yard. Navy Yard is still there in southeast Washington. What I gradually figured out was he was turning the racism of the day, which made him into a sort of invisible fellow, into his superpower because he could lurk somewhere at the market. He talks about being at the market, at the train depot, other places where people gather. And he'd overhear conversations often of the slave of the slaveholders whose, you know, workers and servants he had just helped in, you know, escape by wagon by the wagon load. Whenever he could, he was operating sort of at the mass uh, mass scale and filling a wagon with 10, 15, 20 people before sending it north. So he would hear these people talking about how, on it, you know, my entire workforce uh, has disappeared overnight. I don't know where they went. He, he could kind of lurk and take notes. And at some point, Tory, as editor of the paper, he keeps running these house ads because Smallwood's letters have become such a feature, such a popular feature. And he he says, you know, he's lurking among you taking notes. And I mean, especially you're talking about he's doing it from the belly of the beast. But as you talk about this within as well, this isn't a situation where he has 20 people who he's telling, oh, just go talk to this guy. He'll get you out on Wednesday. He was part of it. Like if 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 he was helping you get out, you were going to lay eyes on Thomas Smallwood. And I think from a security perspective, they might have been a little lax because that's what they had to do. Yeah. At one point, he actually, in some of these uh, situations blew up, not surprisingly, usually because of betrayals. You know, not surprisingly, the slaveholders and the slave catchers were often offering money to people in the black community who could essentially, you know, expose a plan to escape, you know, on Saturday or say people are gathering right now in such and such a barn you know, tell the police, go there. So there were betrayals taking place and many people who were trying to profit off the people who were escaping, charging them fees to meet Smallwood, that kind of thing. So it was a very dangerous situation. And uh, at one point he finds himself betrayed. And, you know, the only thing he can say is that he had met some of these people at night and was so dark, he didn't think they'd be able to recognize him. And there were a bunch of other Smallwoods uh, around D.C., Desperate times, desperate measures, I guess you could say. People were often coming to Smallwood to escape because they had gotten word or came to suspect that they were going to be sold south. You know, that might happen if the slaveholder is on his deathbed, because often the property, including the the enslaved people, would be sold off as a result of a death. Or sometimes a slaveholder would just, they'd know he was short of money, and he would say, language they used at the time was, I'm going to put you in my pocket, which literally means send a note to a guy like Hope Slatter and, you know, collect $500 or $600 or $800 and have you put in shackles and carted away. So uh, that was often the motive to run. 
So you kind of, you know, I kind of came to realize how entangled and how interdependent the domestic slave trade and what we came to call the Underground Railroad uh, were at the time. So we're talking about the Underground Railroad, this term everybody knows. But uh, Tory and Smallwood, uh, you have to write this book because not a lot of people know about them. Something very enlightening in the background of all of this is really the reason we don't know their names is because abolitionism by itself was not this one thing where everybody was focused on this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. It turns out there was a lot of politics and a lot of backstabbing and that's kind of why we don't know as much about Tory and Smallwood as we want, right? I think that's true. The first name to come to mind in the context of abolitionism is almost always William Lloyd Garrison. He certainly deserves credit for putting a huge amount of energy and effort into creating an abolition movement in the 1830s. I think viewing him from the point of view, especially of Charles Tory, gave me a different take on him. Garrison believed that slavery had so corrupted government and politics that, you know, sort of conscientious abolitionists could not use government and politics without getting their hands dirty, so to speak. And even voting, he considered to be a step too far, getting you in league with the system. And the system was so corrupted by slavery that he didn't vote. And so, you know, that may have been an admirable point of view from the standpoint of moral purity, but it was quite impractical. You know, that he and his allies talked about moral suasion as a uh, a tool to fight slavery. And, and as far as I can tell, the idea was you would talk and talk and talk about how terrible slavery was, and eventually the slaveholders would see the light and and uh, turn away from this terrible institution. You know, that sounds very naive to us, and I think it sounded naive to people like Tory. Abolitionism always had its factions and its infighting, like any political movement. And in Massachusetts in the late 1830s, Things kind of came to a head and Tory and some of his uh, friends tried to essentially oust Garrison from his leadership position. Garrison managed to hang on. So they started a separate sort of set of institutions inside the abolition movement. And notably, while Garrison had not wanted to, you know, dirty his hands with politics, they started a political party. And so Tory was one of the founders of the so-called Liberty Party, which it must be said did not have a lot of success. But it was, uh, you know, an avowedly anti-slavery party. That was its definition. That was its identity. And, uh, you know, it did it did make some sense that if you were going to battle slavery, you should do it at the political level and not just, you know, harangue the slaveholders and, and hope they uh, had a change of heart. So I think, you know, ultimately Garrison and his sons who wrote a very influential biography of him, they essentially wrote the history. And a guy like Tory was seen as a, a marginal hothead sort of character. I think it's fair to say that Garrison and Tory hated each other. So Tory got certainly less than his due for many, many years. There's a good biography of him written by a distant relative, a psychiatrist named E. Fuller Tory that came out about 10 years ago. But, you know, I, I think it's fair to say he's been neglected. On the other hand, by comparison to Tory, Smallwood has been terribly neglected. You know, he's been almost absent from histories of abolitionism. In fact, whole volumes on black abolitionism fail to mention Thomas Smallwood's name. And 
that was certainly one of my motives in in trying to um, dig up as much as I could about him and write about him because he he deserves the credit. You know, his run did not last very long, but boy, he burned with a with a bright light, and he did things that. You know, I think in in some ways he pioneered this very aggressive approach to escapes, you know, where he was trying to get people out, not by ones and twos, but by tens and twenties. And these letters that we've been talking about are, you know, kind of a unique piece of American literature. And I hope they'll get a lot of attention because he, he really deserves it. And it does make you wish that somebody had settled a million dollars on him and allowed him to write full time. As opposed to, you know, first making his living shoemaking, and then uh, when he escapes uh, to Canada, he turns to saw sharpening and saw manufacturing uh, to make a living. So, uh, you know, his time for writing is limited. I mean, this has to be especially, you know, you are somebody who's worked in the media, right, deep dives into things, which you're dealing in facts. This has got to be a very, like, there is a lot of great stuff in this book. You find out this and you find out that, but I know... A lot of books on the Underground Railroad, you could feel the author as you write it go, oh, I wish I knew a little bit more about this episode, or I wish I knew a little bit more, because this is still a time period very shrouded in darkness, right? It was, and in a way, for good reason. We're talking about a clandestine operation where people are breaking the law and risking their lives. So it's not the kind of thing, you know, in that sense, there's a good reason why there weren't a lot of real-time accounts of escapes. You know, William Still, the great Philadelphia abolitionist, published his book on the Underground Railroad in 1870, you know, when it was all over. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that you can't tell. There are details of how they organized, how Smallwood organized these escapes that I would love to understand a little better, though he says he says a good bit about it between the letters and his memoir. But his memoir, too, was published in 1851. So, you know, slavery is still alive and well, and he has to be a little bit careful. I think one of the most gratifying uh, discoveries in writing the book was, as I read through Smallwood's letters to the Albany paper, you know, I come across one where he says he's addressing a slaveholder as usual and mocking him for uh, having advertised, you know, the slaveholders were put in advertisements that said, you know, my slave Scott has gone missing and, you know, $50 reward for anyone who brings him in. And uh, Smallwood would often quote these ads and then riff on them (laughs) and mock them because basically he knew that the people being advertised for were, uh, you know, a thousand miles away and weren't going to be coming back. And so he's addressing one of these slaveholders, and he says he must have disappeared by that underground railroad or steam balloon that one of your city constables was swearing about the other day. And so he he later enlarges on this, and, and he says that somewhat notorious Baltimore constable named John Zell, who made like a lot of cops in those days, a lot of his income came from collecting rewards for slave catching. And so he was complaining that a lot of people were escaping and that he didn't know how they were getting away. And so he was apparently overheard saying they must be getting around away by underground railroad or steam balloon. Well, there were no underground railroads. Steam balloon was like a a new technology. And so essentially he was saying they must have been abducted by aliens. He was saying talking about something that's impossible. So he's just letting off steam so to speak. But Smallwood, 
hears this, presumably not with his own ears, though you never know. Uh, he presumably he heard from someone else that this notorious constable was being driven crazy by these escapes. And of course, this is a compliment to Smallwood. So he picks up on this idea that, oh, yeah, they're all getting away on the Underground Railroad. And he starts riffing on this in his letters. So he often advises uh, slaveholders who find their human property missing to apply at the office of the Underground Railroad in Washington for details as to where they may have gone. Of course, there was no office of the Underground Railroad, which is his whole point. And at other times, he, uh, he, he appoints himself the general agent of all the branches of the National Underground Railroad. So when I came across this, though, I'm kind of reading it and I'm chuckling and taking notes and thinking, is this the origin of the name of the Underground Railroad? So I immediately started looking into it and I found there were a couple of apocryphal stories about how the term had arisen in the 1830s. But as soon as you, you know, sort of traced the story back, they became extremely dubious. In one case, a guy remembered that in a Washington, D.C. newspaper in 1839, he had read about an enslaved man who had been tortured and said that he'd escaped by the Underground Railroad. Anyway, it made no sense. There is no such article in a Washington newspaper in 1839. And also the guy was recalling in the 1860s. He said, as best I can recall. So none of this had, had impressed scholars very much. And scholars had mostly said, we don't really know where this term comes from. So, you know, I thought... Well, maybe it really came from Smallwood. And indeed, when I went into the big newspaper databases, the ones I used were mostly newspapers.com and genealogybank.com. And, you know, I, I just put the phrase Underground Railroad into those databases, not only the way we write it, but also the way they sometimes wrote it back then, which would sometimes be four words, Underground Railroad. And anyway, uh, it turns out that the first uses you can find in both of those uh, sets are from uh, essentially reprints of Smallwood's letters in other papers. Um, papers in the mid-19th century were always swiping and borrowing from each other. And uh, so there were a number of them, and they were all his stuff. The first, the f everything in 1842, I think, is from Smallwood. But then you see it picked up by others, and others begin using it the way Smallwood does, as, as essentially, as Smallwood once called it, a lash to, with which to beat the slaveholders. Essentially, uh, a, a big joke at the expense of the slaveholders that, ha ha, everyone's escaping on this mythical railroad and, and uh, you can't catch them. But then it becomes a kind of convenient way of referring to escapes in general especially escapes that have some assistance. So, uh, you know, within within a few years, people are using the Underground Railroad to just say the family escaped by the Underground Railroad just means they escaped from slavery and they may have, you know, stopped in at some sympathetic people's houses on the way. So it really is true. Fortunately, because we have these big newspaper databases now, you can kind of prove it. So it really is true that Smallwood came up with this term in the way that we use it. Yet another reason that Thomas Smallwood's name should be known. Now, I know you can't give me an exact number. We'll never quite know. But based upon everything you read, how many people do you think Smallwood and Tory helped escape? It is tough to know, you know, but there are various clues. There are numbers that are given by either Smallwood or Tory or uh, their allies in Albany, in the Albany anti-slavery com community, because they were essentially receiving people and sending them on their way north. 
And when Tory was dying, he claimed that he had assisted 400 people in escaping. That, I think, is almost certainly a gross overstatement. However, I think he's counting the people who escaped with Smallwood's help when Tory was working as an editor in Albany. If you add up everything Smallwood did and everything Tory did, Tory also continued to organize some escapes after Smallwood had had to flee for his life. I think if you add up everything together, you know, 400 is a realistic number. It may be exaggerated. It's hard to know for sure. But they were helping people uh, depart at times every week or two in numbers of 15 and 20. You know, you can imagine how they could uh, build up quite uh, quite a large number over the roughly two to three years that they were active. Well, Scott, last question for you. There are these poor misguided souls who say, I don't read history, right? That was this class I had to take in high school. History is boring. Don't make me do that again. If I got one of those people in front of you and sat them down and they said, why should I read Flea North? What would you say? You know, I would say, apart from the importance of this history, because these guys were really impressive figures in their day, really interesting figures. The idea of escaping from slavery is really an exciting thing. You can imagine a video game based on this kind of, these guys were risking everything to help people escape. The people who were escaping were risking even more. You know, and the stakes were extremely high. Imagine being told that you are my property and you can no longer earn money and you have to do everything I say and that's it. So I would just say, give this book a try. If you don't find it exciting, I'll give you your money back. I didn't want to write a big sort of compendium of everything about slavery in Maryland, for example, though that would be a worthy thing to do. I wanted to tell a story with characters with a plot. And boy, these guys served one up. Some people who have read it, some of the early readers, inevitably talk about movies. And, you know, it's hard when you read some of this. I don't want to give anything away, but Smallwood's final escape is definitely movie material. It's very hair-raising, very exciting, and uh, thank God he made it. Absolutely. Scott, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on and talk about it. Thanks for having me on. This, is, this has been a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. And that's it for this episode. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. Flee North. Go out and get everybody's super interesting book, an amazing story. I think you'll love it. In the meantime, hit us up Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Listen to other episodes of the podcast. Tell your friends. Leave reviews. Leave us five-star reviews. Those would be amazing. Until next time, nerds, stay cool.